Check out We Are Calvin football podcast in association with McAvoy's Super Value, Virginia. Real food, real people. Try Super Value's own range in store today. Quality products at one third the price of branded labels. McAvoy's Super Value, Virginia. Supporting local. We Are Calvin podcast. Because Calvin's not just a place, it's a people. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of the McAvoy Super Value GEA podcast brought to you by We Are Cavan. On today's show, we're going to um, look down under to Melbourne and see how Ashton Shorten and Collinwood got on over the weekend. And we're also going to bring you part one of our interview with Andre Quinn, the head of athletic development for Cavan GEA. It's a podcast that we've done on an interview we done for the diehard service over on patreon.com forward slash we are Calvin. But the first part um, really delves into the person and we've got a huge reaction from it on Patreon. So we said we'd, we'd deliver this one to our, our regular listeners to the McAvoy's Super Value GEA podcast. Um, but I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Fitzpatrick, sports editor of the Anglo Celt before we go down that rabbit hole. And uh, Paul, Talking about Ashton Shorten once again, season two is just going from strength to strength in Collinwood, and Ashton has become such a crucial part of of Collinwood's success so far. We were singing our praises, and you were speaking to her a couple of weeks ago, Damien. But really, it is going from from strength to strength for her. Like you know, we talked about uh, the physical transformation uh, in her in her uh, athletic development la- last time. Listen to the Andre Quinn interview too much with these kind of phrases <laughs> I'm dropping. But you could see the physical transformation of her and she said that herself that she's in much better shape, but like, she's staying absolutely out of her skin. And it's a, it's a major story, this, for... for uh, I know that the women's AFL is sort of still a fledgling league, but it's it's starting to establish itself now. It's getting a lot of coverage. It's, it's a major story, this, I think, to have a Cavan person in any sport over there doing so well at that level. Like, that's the highest level of... Um, of Australian league uh, football, mm. there is for for females, but in terms of professional women's leagues, it, it probably it probably is up there with any in the world in terms of the interest it's getting, the crowds it gets, and so on. So, uh, to for, to have a Cavan lady doing so well in it, I think is phenomenal. I was just looking at and and I think you've hit on a, on a really important point. I was just looking at the attendances. So I, I like back back in in ordinary times, twenty nineteen, looking at. Premier League uh, soccer in England and looking at some of the attendances in average uh, ladies league games there you know there might be you're, you're down into the hundreds at the weekend there with restrictions and stuff going on still I think slight restrictions in Melbourne um, at Marvel Stadium there was two and a half thousand people attended Collinwood's game against North Melbourne and you know it, it shows there's a real interest in it and, and I have to commend I think the AFL have taken a leap of faith into pumping a lot of resources into the uh, the AFLW and, and, it's, and it's paying dividend because I now sit down on a Monday night more often than not and flick on TG Cahar 
and have a watch to see how how the games went over the weekend. And if I if I am about on a Saturday evening and have the time or having kids pulling out of me, I try to turn on the live game there. So I think they've they've done a, done a huge job. And and I think on top of that, Collinwood just storming four for four for the first time in the in the club's history, uh, albeit a, a recent enough history, is a hell of a start. Yeah, oh look, completely. It's a really good news story. Like, and I think it'll make every Cavan person proud to see uh, a Cavan athlete, uh, in particular, doing so well out there. Like, to be fair, to be honest, my interest in it, if I'm being hundred percent honest, would be limited. Were not that uh, a Cavan player that's doing so well, and now you can see that that it's you know it's it's a league that has so many interesting angles to it that it's it's rightly up there with a lot of these top leagues around the world. So you know, it'll, as you said, it'll spark an interest, and you might. You might never have turned it on, Damien, only that, that Ashton Shorten was playing it, but now, now you're almost a fan of it. So it's doing its job. The marketing is doing its job. It's the power of marketing, I suppose. And that's what all sport needs. I know in handball, that's something that we were missing out on, that we don't have casual fans in handball. We don't really have people who are fans of handball. We just have handball people and, and the rest. The, 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 yeah. the unenlightened masses, I call them. But uh, that's what all sports <laughs> need to, to, to thrive at the top level, is to have a fan base that aren't necessarily a member of a club or are involved in the game. And that's what they're doing there. So I think it's very good marketing. Like it's a godsend for them uh, to get TG Carr to show these games in Ireland. And it's great for TG Carr, obviously. They probably picked up the rights pretty cheap. Uh, and it's it's a good filler for them at this time of year. But it's it's great for the for the Aussies. But look, they're a massive professional organization to know what they're doing. And uh, I think they know what I think they knew what they were doing all through the years of the international rules as well, particularly the under 17 series when it was on the go. Like I personally don't think we got a lot out of it, the GA end of it. Uh, and I know Mickey Hart is always banging that drum as well. Uh, particularly, we didn't get anything out of the under 17 end of it. But um, they got a lot out of it. And they're a big professional organisation, as I say, they, they're, they're very well attuned to these things. Yeah. Yeah. This weekend, Colin Wood are, are, are taking on Melbourne. So last weekend, they defeated Melbourne, North Melbourne, 28 to 8, with Ashley getting hoar. I think it's her fifth goal of the season. Um, and she got a lovely assist as well, a, a soccer-style pass through for Malloy, I think it was, that, that got the goal. But um, this weekend, they take on Melbourne, and, and it's going to be a tough enough game. They're, they're, um, they've only lost one of their last four games, Melbourne. So they, they put, a, put up big scores, scoring 60 against uh, the Kangaroos. They, uh, they beat Richmond 44-16. And then one on the road to the the Gold Coast Sun, so it's going to be a big ask or a big game this weekend. Um, if Colin Wood were to get over that, it would it would cement the uh, the idea out there that that Colin Wood are, are one of the favourites to go on and and win the AFLW. Yeah, well, look at him. again. Sure, look, it would be absolutely brilliant. And again, as I was saying before, like the great thing is that these players can come back and play with their counties then after. So there really is in the women's game over there, there is the best of all worlds. I know we did see a couple of players coming back and playing with their counties last year uh, with the way mm. COVID went and so on. But it's it's the exception rather than the rule with the men. But it, I think it'd be brilliant. I think it's I think it's brilliant that those ladies can come home and play a championship with their counties as well. Yeah, without a doubt. Okay, so we're going to um, break away now and cut into the first part of a three-part interview series that we've done with the Head of Athletic Development for Cavan GA, Andre Quinn. Brady's Arva Limited, 
Main dealers for Volkswagen cars and commercial vehicles have been serving the needs of the motoring community in Cavan, Longford, Leitrim, Monaghan, Mead and the surrounding counties for over 50 years. A family-owned and family-run business, Brady's are famous for their long association with the GAA. If you're looking for a new or used car or commercial vehicle, check out Brady's Arva Limited. They provide an unrivaled sales and after-sales service and are open six days a week. Brady's Arva Limited. Get on the winning team today. See www.bradysarva.ie for more details. On today's show, it's the first of a three-part series where I sit down with the Head of Athletic Development for Cavan GAA. It's the first in a full-time role, first person in a full-time role um, in Cavan GAA in that particular area. And uh, Andre Quinn sat down with me for a very, very in-depth conversation. So here's part one of a three-part special with the down man, but now adopted son of Cavan, Andre Quinn. Okay, folks, so I'm delighted to uh, be the, the first in the Cavan media scene to be able to lift the veil. I'm about to take the, 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 the cover, the mask of Batman. I'm joined by the Cavan SNC coach, Andre Quinn. And, and uh, Andre, this is something I've been looking forward to do for a long time because um, you're now over, it's hard to believe, over two years um, in the role with Cavan, but you've, uh, you've, you've, You've been so busy, I suppose, that it's been hard to just hook up. So we're going to delve right into this and stay on it for a long time, if that's all right. We'll we get a good in-depth conversation. Now that you've got your Batman cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, cheers, Stephen. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about it. So for, for people who don't know, people listening into this, um, you're from Down, you're from Warren Point. Um, yeah. Tell us about your, your, your background in sport as a youngster. Where, where, what were you doing when you were around the town in Warren Point? <laughs> Well, Warren Point is a real, uh, real. It's a, it's a real mix of a Gaelic football and soccer town. It's a real hub for soccer players. Um, you know, considering it's a, I suppose, a real nationalist area. Gaelic football will be dominant in pretty much every other nationalist area up the north. But there was a real soccer hub, and it was probably really came down to. Well, I, I, somebody could correct me here, but I'd say that a lot of it was down to a man called John Boyle, who played in the Irish League um, as a soccer player. And then, of course, he was coaching generations of people under 10. And so, obviously, all across the country, you have people supporting soccer teams. But when you have, a, I guess, an underage structure in place, it, it becomes more um, tangible in terms of being able to actually produce people who actually you know, play the sport in a serious level. So, I mean, so many of the players that would have came through over several generations would have been trained by the likes of John and then, John's experience must have played a huge role in that in the sense that he was a, a soccer player at the highest level in Ireland. Um, but there's nobody sporty in my family. I'm really the only one. I mean, my brother's interested in sport, but he never really played it. Uh, father never really interested. Mother never really interested. So it only really became through um, friends at school. You know, some of my best friends were huge soccer fans. So almost a split back when I think about my primary school classes there was a split down the middle in terms of who were the lads that Gaelic was first in their lives and then the other half was soccer um, and then the other advantage as well probably was is that uh, it's easier to go out in a little small town and kick a ball against the wall in the context of soccer uh, than it is in Gaelic football um, so uh, 
that it sort of it sort of almost the environment sort of drew me more towards soccer at that time and people that I sort of associated with at that time. But of course, then it would have been it would have been Gaelic football would have been rammed down your throat in primary school and it would have been rammed down your throat in secondary school just the way that it was. We we didn't play any soccer except when it was our own time, lunch time, break time. Nobody ever once suggested playing basketball, even though we had basketball nets. Nobody ever suggested playing Gaelic football, even though the goals were Gaelic football goals. Everybody just played soccer. That was just the way it was. And so um, I actually remember, like, I, I definitely something that's been a big work on for me is like being, um, having fear avoidance and having a fear of failure about doing things that I'm not good at or things that maybe where I feel I look stupid, especially when I was a child. So I can remember all kinds of experiences of, um, I guess, feeling really stupid or being made to look stupid because I couldn't do what some of the other lads were doing. And I remember like probably around about primary five, primary six, or so probably about eight or nine years of age, just doing a simple like pickup drill, Gaelic football, Gaelic football and PE and messing up the first one in the drill and all the older lads laughing at me. And so in my head, I just immediately uh, regressed to avoiding that scenario so it wouldn't happen again, rather than I was a mistake, big wow. I just I'll try again and I'll try again and I'll try again, but uh, yeah, so that, so that played a big role in terms of you know where my head would have been at. And as as time progressed by, like I started taking in terms of team sport, I actually was probably quite late. I remember coming into the under ten team probably quite late in the in the season that I was last eligible for them. And uh, this is in soccer, and I remember um, I remember and this this gives you an idea probably of how inexperienced my mother and father were in terms of being able to you know, in a sporting context where um, I had no chance of being in this cup final team so the team got to the cup final and there was like 24 people in the in the, in the, in the squad and uh, I remember I got to like the Friday before the Saturday and uh, I hadn't heard from John about if I was in the team or not and I knew in my head like one part of my head was telling me you're not in the team you've only been here a month and you're, and you're absolutely crap um, so you've got no chance and all these other boys that I would have been playing with they were all really good footballers compared to me at that age they were really really just a different standard and um, I remember asking my mum should I phone John and ask him if, I, if I'm playing maybe he forgot to ring me and so she told me to go and do it I said why not yeah you ring John and I remember absolutely being heartbroken when he told me no and I can I never spoke to him about it since um, but I, I wonder if he remembers it because I was, I was crying for ages after I lost the phone. But all that stuff actually um, scarred me pretty bad. So I don't think I played under 11 football because I think what happened was then the, the, the age groups were two-year gaps. So you'd have to go and play with lads who are a year above you in, in school. And I just didn't have the courage. So, um, and then when we got to, I returned to team football in under 12. I was still absolutely useless. I would be the kind of player where the ball would be passed to me and I would go to trap the ball and the ball would run underneath my boot. And again, you know, it's it, when you can talk about the technical comparison to all the other lads at that time, like I was way behind all of them. But probably from the ages of about eight to about uh, seven, 16, I'd say I would play practice soccer every single day. And we had a car park beside us that we painted goals onto. So I'd go out by myself. Like we didn't even need the other lad to be around. So it was like going out every single day, um, you know, practicing for 20 minutes to an hour, coming back in, maybe going back out at nighttime, 
no matter what the weather was, always out. I have scars all over my uh, elbows and knees from the amount of times that we f- fell on the concrete. Um, but I just, I don't know, it just was a combination of enjoyment and a, com- a combination of if I train, if I practice when nobody else knows I'm practicing, all of a sudden when I get back with the lads, I'll be better than what I was. And it was almost like a protective mechanism as much as anything else. But by the time I got to under 14, I was the captain of the team. So I'd gone from being absolutely stone useless that the, the manager probably would reluctantly put me on the field uh, at under 12 to being the captain of the team. And I wasn't the best player of the team under 14, but I was the captain of the team anyway. And I was the captain of the team at under 15, under 16. And by the time when we got to under 16s, John Boyle was, had been the senior manager at that time in a very successful World Point senior team who basically had been dominating Mid-Ulster for years and years and years. And going back to what I was saying, we had a real hub of re- very, very good soccer players. I don't say this lightly when I say that it was players for, played for Warren Point Town that if they had been in the right environment, had the right pathway into professional soccer, it definitely was these players were good enough to play the highest level of professional soccer. And um, But we couldn't, we couldn't progress past Mid-Ulster because uh, it's all limited by facilities, grounds, changing rooms. And so we just had a port cabin and a pitch. So we did, you weren't able to go up through the ranks into the top division in the Irish, in, in, in the uh, north of Ireland. But when I was uh, 16 or 17, I forget, I was the first player from my age group to actually play for the senior team. So there was an opportunity to play a game and John invited two of us up to play. And I was the first, I was the only one that got on. So there was a big change in terms of that, probably eight, seven, eight, nine year period. We're going from being absolute loser on the team that you know we, you know i remember the lads mocking my boots you know we were around to the, the shoe shop around the corner and mom buying the cheapest boots and sure they're all the same and to the man at the counter was saying yeah they're all the same it's the same as nike and then you go to the you go to the train session everybody's taking the piss out of you because you've got the gamiest looking banana boots they're there on, on the pitch but all that stuff probably actually had a negative effect on me um but anyway, yeah, all, the, all that time then, like Gaelic football was taken very, very seriously in the Abbey Grammar. And John Rafferty would have been the uh, would have been the PE teacher and the McCrory manager during my time there. And um, I used to just play in goals because um, I was actually pretty handy. And in my head, it was like the closest thing to playing soccer. So again, there was a little bit of fear avoidance where I'm better at doing this than challenging myself outfield and actually trying to be good at this thing. I wasn't too bothered about it, uh, about being good at it. And yeah, that, that was probably it then. So playing, 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 playing good football through school. And, um, but and the soccer was just being taken so seriously and our team was so good. And probably the core group of friends that I had in the wide circle of friends were all soccer over Gaelic. And of course there was loads of conflict over the years because there was parts of the year where the, the seasons would overlap and the boys who played both would be put in the middle all the time. And um, the soccer used to take the high ground all the time and tell the lads, look, they're not playing ball here. Like, they're, they're, t- they're telling you it's not the made You have to be at all our training sessions or you're not part of the team. So we said, look, we'll, we'll see you at the weekend or maybe you'll come to one session a week or whatever and come to one session and be part of the session. So there was also a little bit of that as well where you know, from where I was standing, I just thought that was unreasonable behaviour. So... There were so many things that you know created fear avoidance and put me off. I'm not challenging myself to be to be part of these other sports. Um, so soccer was the main sport that I played. Did a little bit of judo for a few years, um, 
And again, I remember getting to the final of one of the early grades and getting absolutely wrecked by the guy in the final and being in tears again. And that totally put me off going back to another grading. I remember we had grades in Belfast uh, and getting the bus on Saturday morning, nine o'clock, and just waking up absolutely, you know, performance anxiety through the roof and just not going and uh, making up excuses not to go. So it's two years of practicing judo where it probably was a green belt, but actually finished with a yellow belt doing two stripes or whatever, whatever it was. I actually played the piano for four years as well, which is the same story. And only had two grades to show for it because there was a part of the grading assessment that I um, I absolutely just was so petrified about doing because I'm so bad about it. I remember the teacher at the time couldn't, almost shouted at me because I couldn't get this bit right. And I I felt she couldn't understand where I was coming from. And so um, lots and lots of fear avoidance and lots of fear of failure built up to do all these other things. Um, so, uh, but then when I got to 23, that was the last I ever played soccer because that's when I went over to London. And the, and the, the, the funny thing coming from, from that conversation is, is the bit I've got to know of you over the last few months, I, I'd never have put that picture of, of Andre Quinn growing up. I'd have thought you were the, 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 the bullish, jump straight in, embrace it and try because you're, you're, you're very much that sort of a, a person now. But how did then, how did the S&C role that you're, you're now involved in, how did that come about? Where did the, the love or the start of the S&C journey go? Well, uh, I, I think I always knew that that's what I wanted to do. Definitely by the age of 17, 18. And um, a lot of it stems back to, again, when I was at school, like I would have been mocked for being the skinniest guy. So I would have been very, very tall, very, very early. So I would have been six foot three, but I would have been maybe uh, 70 kilos or whatever, maybe even less than that. And um, But also just being fascinated very early doors about like, I remember watching World's Strongest Man, you know, around Christmas time and just being totally fascinated by it. Um, and all these little things sort of draw you into, I guess, other forms of training. And I used to be like a bit of a secret trainer. So you know, I wanted to be first in all the fitness tests. And I used to think that wrongly, I used to think that if I could improve myself physically, I'd be better overall. Um, and uh, so I'd go, I used to got to the stage where I was probably training seven days a week. One of the days would be a match. I'd run the training, I'd run home from training, I'd cycle to the gym, I'd cycle home from the gym. And I just thought it was as simple as a commitment to if I prepare to do all that, it'll accelerate everything. And it did accelerate everything, but what I didn't foresee was just the sheer amount of overuse injuries that I'd get as a result. So, you know, I was just constantly broken. Um, and they were all chronic-based injuries, very few acute injuries. Um, so it just was absolutely, you know, I remember in one pre-season where we did a fitness test and being beaten by two of the lads who were, who beat me and they beat me in spite because they were annoyed that I had trained through the whole off season and they hadn't. And they came in and they just beat me. And it was a bit like, uh, quite sure, almost sure, yeah. mock, mock, mocking me that I had done all the work, but not done as good as them. And they, they were much more stronger than I was. So I had to work very, very hard to get there. But I remember like in, when I was in the, um, in chemistry class and one of the lads had like an old bodybuilding book from 83. And I says, oh, give me a look at that. And I um, was reading it. And the class, I think, finished. And I still had the book. And um, 
I just put it in my bag and I was like, I'm going to sort of nick this and I'll take it home. I'm going to read it more because I was obsessed because it was, if you remember in, in, in 83, or sorry, in 82, I think that was the last time Oren Schwarzenegger won Mr. Olympia. So this was basically, Joe Wider had written this book and Joe Wider was the guy who basically is the godfather of, of bodybuilding. So he was the one that put all the Mr. Olympia competitions in place. So it was basically an encyclopedia from 1983 about bodybuilding. I was about 15 when I had this. And I wasn't allowed to use weights, so I didn't have any weights at home by this stage. But I was obsessed with, one, getting better, and two, being curious, and then three, uh, trying to get away from being skinny, six foot three. Um, so I must have read that book because, of course, no internet back then, so no other sources of information. You wouldn't get in the local library books about sports training so or any kind of training. So I must have read that book, no joke, about a hundred times, thinking that every time I'd read through it, I'd find something I didn't get before, understand it better than before. And, um, you know, eventually I got my own training, uh, own lifting equipment at home and lots and lots of trial and error and lots of trying to apply what I was reading out of the books. But probably all the way to about 18, 19, there was still no other information outside of Muscle and Fitness magazine that you'd buy in the shop or some of these books that would have been put together, like Aaron Schwarzenegger wrote an encyclopedia on bodybuilding. And again, like I must've read that 10 times because there was nothing else for me to read. And I was absolutely in my head, I was like, I'm convinced I'm gonna find something in this that's gonna actually click in my head about what I, what I should be doing next. And I had never heard of the term strength and conditioning or anything like that, but I already, I, I, I was absolutely certain that there must be people training athletes. There must be people doing that. And I remember at around about 18, the internet sort of was more common. We had a computer at home. I think it was almost like every other day, I remember like Googling stuff about training and nothing would come up. There was not the websites in place. There was nothing you could find that was any use. But I'd go back another couple of days later and try again, still nothing. And I remember doing that for like weeks and weeks and weeks and end. And then all of a sudden something popped up because at that time, probably every website that's in place now was, they're probably popping up left, right and center almost on a, on a daily basis. And um, I, uh, I went, I, I took a year right after, after the Abbey and my plan was to go and do a year at, for the Irish Army. And at that time I had the grades to go and do the cadetship, but I wanted to go in as a recruit and um, I, I wanted to go in at the bottom end because I had no ambition really to do a long time in the Army. I just thought it was a good way to spend a gap year. I just thought if I had to went to university, I didn't really know what I wanted to do academically. Again, I didn't, I didn't see what the pathway was into working in sport, but uh, I, th I thought that I didn't want to, I was, I was, um, I had the grades to get into civil engineering. I don't even know what the hell civil engineering was. And um, it was just like a, a sort of almost a follow on from, from the, the, the maths, physics and art, which is what I did for my A-levels. And um, so my plan was to just train like fuck and uh, go and do the, uh, join the army. And my, my, my idea in my head was, was that I was gonna go in and smash it. I was gonna just physically be superior to everybody else that was there. So I had a few relatives that were in the army, you see. So there's a little bit of a connection and a little bit of a, you know, a, people that can help you, guide you in towards how you get into it. And I had a friend in school, one of my best friends in the army actually left, left after doing the GCSEs. And all I was hearing was this fellow was like one of the best soldiers that ever came in. So they were saying, I had heard things like he was uh, the, the the recruitment stage for, um, I forget the proper terminology, but there's there's three, there's two stages of being a private. There's a stage two and there's a stage three. And when you go in as a recruit, 
your first period of the training is that you become a stage two private or whatever it's called. And then there's another period of two or three months where you become a stage three, just an advanced layer of training. And um, he was like, they give out a, they give out like a best recruit award. He'd won it. He'd, he'd won it. And then people were telling me that in the courses then they were doing afterwards. So once he was a fully fledged shoulder, just like everybody else, they do training courses and stuff. And people were telling me back that like he was breaking records in it and stuff like this. So that all kind of like fueled me because I was still doing my A levels. That all fueled me that this was I was going to go and I I was, but it didn't kind of work out. It didn't it didn't work out for loads of different reasons. Um, I spent only a short period of time there, and then I went I went on to university when I was nineteen to study civil engineering. And from day one, I was completely out of my depth. I remember going into the first lecture and I was on surveying, and I remember like the lecture was straight into the lecture. And he was talking about being able to, you know, measure levels and how you measure, you know, using a dumpy level, how you measure levels. I remember like looking around the room thinking, have I missed the intro here today? Like I was looking at the schedule and I was like, I've missed, I've missed one of the lectures here today somehow. Because everybody was writing down stuff and the guy beside me was doing the, 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 the mathematics on it. And obviously I was good at math, but I hadn't a clue what was going on. And that was pretty much the, the, the start of that, that, that was... The, the entire four years was exactly a replica of that day one where I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was in the bottom three academically in the class. When I went out on the placement year, which was ended up being 15 months, was fine when it came to all the graft, but just was totally out of my depth, didn't know what I was doing, couldn't wrap my head around it. Um, and in the second year of the degree, like my, my friends that I have from college will, will still joke with me about this. But we'd have a deadline on a Friday at four o'clock and they'd be all panicking doing their coursework. And I wouldn't have even started. And it'd be four o'clock in the library in Jordanstown on Thursday. And I would be still reading about training. And I came across, I stumbled across, there was a particular one or two websites that had what was called Q&As. And I stumbled across them and they had been doing it for years. And it took me months to read through every article and every Q&A on the website and even though I had all these deadlines which I ended up I ended up getting everything in for and I was passing and stuff but I used to just do all-nighters uh, at the end and cram in because I was just my mind was on the, the training and then in the on my final year I was totally losing it in the final year like I was I remember like driving the the, the motorway was being redone uh, in Belfast I was being not redone or built from almost what it is now and I remember getting the bus up uh, from Warren Point some days in the final year and we drive past it I remember actually feeling nauseous this was going to be my life you know 40 50 years of making sandwiches every night and you know getting up at six in the morning to do because you know these building jobs aren't on your doorstep and all the commuting that would have to exist and you know being absolutely useless at it and um, but around about halfway through the end of semester one a friend of mine who was studying sports science over at Twickenham said that he heard that there was a strength and a conditioning undergraduate degree beginning over in, in that university the following September. So I was like, right, that's it. I'm, that's, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I don't give a fuck about this civil engineering degree. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to go. And um, by this stage, I'd already asked around. I still don't know even if by 2005, no, but probably by 2005, I'd first heard of strength and conditioning in the context that it's used today. Um, and of course, there had been people, there'd been people who've been training athletes for 20, 30 years, but they didn't go maybe go with that job title um, or that title. 
And um, so I finished a degree in civil engineering. And I remember in the last week, totally having a meltdown over the dissertation um, and just, just not going to put it in, just quit on the last week. And I remember speaking to my dad and he says, look, just you persuaded me to finish it. But I mean, what I handed in was just beyond embarrassing. It just was so clueless about what I was doing. And um, it was such a weight off my shoulders finishing that. Um, I ended up working the summer. I actually got a civil engineering degree job in the summer, try and get a bit of money ahead of going to London. And just to get, it got worse. It didn't get better, it got worse. I was just so out of my depth on, on the site as you know, being the actual site engineer. And then went over to London in 2007 and there was no scientific condition degrees in the world at this stage. There was, sorry, undergraduate level. So the one in Twickenham in 2007 in St Mary's was the first undergraduate strength and condition degree in the world. And um, like I had no money or anything and uh, I had enough money to get by at the start. And thankfully the friend who was studying sports science, he was staying on to do, what was he? he oh, his, his, his girlfriend stayed on to do a teaching degree so he stayed with her, got a, he got a year's worth of work. So I was able to move in with them, which made life so much easier. Um, but he, 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 that was probably the start of getting there academically. Um, and then by 2008, I was working with a professional team. So it, it was basically a postgrad, you know, the fact that you had your degree in, in engineering probably helped you to just to get into the course but obviously the love had been built up from from way before or, or the interest in it and, and I've I've heard you mention a number of times in our conversations that you know you love what you do and and that's why you put in so many hours which a lot of people will we, get into that the, the late night Andre Quinn texts that, that, that are that are synonymous with you but how did how did you then get involved was it London Irish that you first got involved with yeah, so again, like a, a lot of luck and a lot of fortune because, again, being so competitive um, and so curious, my thought was when I landed into, I landed there two weeks before the course started. And by this stage, I mean, if there was anything on the internet around training athletes, I had read it. And I had bought textbooks and read them from start to finish because I thought that's where secrets were all in there and I was going to find out all the information I needed and I was going to crack the code so I read textbooks from start to finish, which is not how you're supposed to read textbooks. And I remember when I got to, uh, you had to register 10 days before the course started and you get the reading list of the course. So I actually read half the reading list already. And, but I went into the library and got every other book out and was just absolutely set myself a target that I'd read, I'd read every single book by the time the course started. So I'd give myself 10 days to read everything. I had nothing else to do. So that's what I did. So I read all the textbooks from start to finish because I was thinking when I went in, I was going to be the best in the class. That's where my head was at. So I went from doing something that was completely useless at to doing something that I thought I was actually going to be half decent at. So when I went into the course, it actually became pretty clear that there was probably only really three of us that had a clue about this course. And immediately then we built up a rapport with the lecturers and the man who put the course together, a guy called John Goodwin. So anybody who's involved with sports training or strength conditioning or whatever knows who John Goodwin is. Mm. And... Um, John, probably about a month into the course, John was talking about me and the other two about getting us UK SEA accredited, which is the UK Strength Conditioning Accreditation, and getting out there ASAP. So the course was a three-year course. It didn't include any placement, but he was saying, boy, you just need to get out there because he's ready to go, essentially already. London Irish and Harlequins were actually the two closest clubs. You had teams like Crystal Palace and QPR, 
that were all on the doorstep as well. And of course, there was it was a sporting university, so there was opportunities there to do different things. But uh, it just it simply came down to that um, there was John set up interviews for me and one other fella at Harlequins, um, and we got interviewed by John Dams. I just came away from it at that stage. Harlequins had a real difficult setup. They actually trained in three different places. And it was a bit of a trek for me to get to it, even though geographically it was close. It's actually with the, with, with the way London is and public transport, it was actually a bit of a trek to get to it. And then I had an interview at London Irish. Well, I thought it was an interview. It was actually John had vouched for me. I had gone think it was an interview with the head of SNC at the time. And I, he was just actually coming to show me around before I was going to start. So John had vouched for me so strongly that it was just a done deal before I got there. But it was only an un unpaid internship which at the time was the biggest thing ever for me. But in the grand scheme of like, it's not surprising that that kind of arrangement would have happened. There wasn't an interview. And London Irish were in the Heineken Cup semi-final that year. And I started, they got beat by Toulouse in the semi-final on like a Saturday. And I started on the Monday. So obviously April 2008. So that's how it happened. And it just so happened that as soon as I went in, um, I just actually was, my confidence probably quadrupled within about two days because I was stronger than every single one of the players. Um, in fact, I was stronger than every single person in the building, except for one of the other strength conditioning coaches who was a competitive powerlifter. So he's got like British records and stuff. So I went in and so when the, part of all, what I was being asked to do at that particular stage was, and this is really in the infancy of, you know, what's happened over the last 15 years in terms of uh, sports training, is the use of sports science, strength conditioning, nutrition, and all this stuff. And a big part of what I was being asked to do was basically a lot of it was based in the gym. So when I was working with lads who I could squat 50% more than them, it just gave me the confidence that, hang on a second, these lads are professional athletes. They're possibly 25 kilos heavier than me, but I'm stronger than them. It just confirmed that I, a lot of the things that I thought that I knew and understood well was must be more the case because I was doing everything better than what they were already. So I just had huge, huge confidence. Um, and I just kept confirming in my head this was absolutely for me. And they were actually in the process of hiring a number two strength and conditioning coach. So at this time, there was three of us. There was the head guy, there was the academy guy, and then there was me. And they were looking to put in a second guy that would be what they would have called the assistant strength and conditioning coach or the senior strength and conditioning coach. But they couldn't get the guy they wanted until August. So this is April. So pretty much for, for four months, I was basically the third guy. So they took me to the training camps and everything, which would have been normal practice for the intern. We were over to Italy for a training camp. And um, by the time we got back from the training camp, they already asked me to stay on as part of an employee the season after, um, which I said yes to. So kind of the, that was it then. So that, that's how we got into it. That's how it kind of unfolded. And then, it was four seasons at London Irish. And and so while being a paid employee at London Irish, you were you were finishing your, your college course as well in, in SNC. That's right, yeah. So I didn't finish the degree until 2010. And um I was actually pretty lucky because I've always been a crammer, you know, I've always been leave things at the last minute and that, well, especially academically. Um and then all nighters. Did my first all nighter when I was fifteen, an arc. Uh, a piece of art in uh, the RTCSE instead of all night in the kitchen to finish it. And um, 
just sort of it was just it was, it was easy for me to do and the way that I used to look at it was I just had no discipline to sit down and do work that I wasn't interested in two weeks three weeks two months whatever before the deadline and then you know within like I would just almost time myself that I would give myself a 24-hour window before the deadline and so I might even sleep in the day and then just go for it then for 24 hours and just quit everything else 24 hours just go for it and then you know, go to sleep after the exam or go to sleep after the deadline or whatever but I was sitting on a first class honours and I almost completely messed it up I, I went into a physiology exam in the final year and I was so exhausted because I was essentially already at that stage doing comfortably I was doing 50 hours a week at least on, a, on, a, on an average week with London Irish because I, I was actually they made me they put me in charge of the academy very early so after about a year there I was head of academy strength and conditioning and so I had huge responsibilities well in my head I had huge responsibilities and um, I didn't take the proper time off to prepare for the exam and I was so tired of the exam I thought I was just I was so complacent I was convinced in my head I was going to get like 70% plus in the exam that I was studying for it and I was that tired going to the exam I actually read there was two questions and I read one of the questions wrong and I got like 8% uh, sorry eight I know yeah 8% in that one question and failed the exam uh, and of course then when you fail the exam when you repeat it you can't get higher than the pass mark so 40 percent in that exam pulled my entire average all the way down and then i was in panic stations i'd gone from being a clear first class to um being on the brink of getting a 2-1 and the competitor in me like was like just it was almost a shame that after all this time that i would leave the 2-1 so thankfully, in the end, uh, I got a high enough score in my dissertation, which was worth double, that pulled me back over. I ended up getting a comfortable first. But because of what I was doing, studying at the same time, I was so complacent, I almost screwed up the, the academic side. So I, I, I graduated in 2010. Right. And then, so 2010, 2011, you were still with London Irish. How did the move come about? The move you 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 were with was it Gloucester or Harlequins as well? No Harlequins. What happened Harlequins. was yeah. So in 2012, the team had gone through two bad periods. So um, in the 10-11 season, we lost ten games in a row. So the pressure came on then to the management team at that time, uh, and of course different thing different things change. And then in eleven in the eleven twelve season, we lost eleven out of thirteen. And both them periods of time finished, started with us actually being sort of the top of the league or top two. And then all of a sudden it went off a cliff. And Brian Smith, who was the manager of London Irish, director of rugby, sorry, when I joined originally, he then got headhunted to go work with England um, in the lead up to the 2012 World Cup, 2011 World Cup. And that went badly and everything, and everything. So Brian left England. But then, of course, he was seen as being the messiah. A bit like when Kenny Dengleish was brought back to Liverpool, if you remember, when they were sort of struggling and everybody thought Kenny was the solution because he had done it back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And, um, but the game, had, the game had evolved rapidly. And there was also other things about, like, you know, London Irish board members looking to sell up and all that kind of stuff. So there was no more money coming in. And basically, long story short, when Smitty, Smitty ended up being coming back, Brian Smith came back in. March 2012, I think 25 staff left from March 2012 to June 2012. And I was one of the last ones to go. 
and there's a there's a, there's a whole big backstory to how I was one of the last ones to go, and it was to do with how your position is protected by the RFU and stuff like this. But anyway, um, it got to the stage where all the good people were gone, and I'm not the kind of person like there's people there who stayed on. The uh, there was players, there were staff members who were worried about things like you know their mortgages and stuff like that, and they they kind of stayed on rubbish deals, um, because what was the alternative for them? Where I was like fuck this, like, I'm not being part of this uh, place anymore. And all the good people I'd worked with had actually already either been moved on or had moved on themselves. So there was a mistake in my contract, which essentially meant that they were going to have to pay me out nine months. Everybody else notice period was two to three months. And essentially I was going to get nine months of my salary to leave. So I was like, see you later. So there's a couple of technical things that went on from a they didn't know they weren't aware of the mistake. I became aware of the mistake. And we created a situation where um, I was able to, they were looking, they, they were almost looking for people to walk away. Almost, not quite proper legal voluntary redundancy, but they were. And so when I said, look, I'll walk away, they were happy to sign that off. So it wasn't me handing in my notice uh, per se. So I had a chance to come and actually work for Munster. And um, but I wasn't happy with what what the, uh, the 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 role was and everything else, and I wanted to do the sports rehab postgraduate degree at Twickenham, and so I said, look, if I leave, if I leave Twickenham, I'll never come back. So I decided I'd stay, and because I had the luxury of being paid out a lot of money to not work essentially, I was able to fund the MSC. So I just said I'm going to stay, and I backed myself that I would. Um, I'd find work. And actually, just just by complete uh, luck, good fortune, I actually got offered two jobs in December of 2012. One was to be the head of strength and conditioning for London Scottish, who are the division below um, the Premiership, or go and be the head of sports science for Harlequins. So John Dams obviously knew of me from the interview way back in 2008. And the other guy who's my friend, who's called Gareth Tong, who's the head of performance there now, um, he obviously had been linking it with him all that time. So they wanted, they had just won the premiership in 2012. So they were looking to obviously expand and involve what they were doing. So they were looking for somebody to come in and be the head of sports science. And the way that I looked at it by this stage was in my head, I had already decided around about 2009 that I wanted to be the head of performance because what I was seeing was, was I was seeing people working in silos. The medics would work with the medics, the SNC would work with the SNC, the rugby coaches would work with the rugby coaches. And, you know, there was egos and nobody sharing information and just horrible communication. And of course it only harmed the players and it only harmed the team. And a big problem was, was that there was people who made attempts to be head of performances, which is in a lot of cases, they you sit above multiple departments but of course if you have a SNC background and you're the head head of performance you don't have a good enough understanding of the medical and so the conflicts that exist there or the other way around which is really common in soccer is that the head of performance is typically have a medical background whereas in rugby it's usually off a strength conditioning background so in professional soccer you'd have old school doctors or physicals who would know nothing about training who would be basically calling the shots and um, you know, just multiple, multiple stories 
about, you know, just none of this work well. So in my head, I was like, right, to be a good head of performance, you have to have great understanding of every single area within that. So strength and conditioning, medical, nutrition, psychology, sports science. And so um, the job at London Scottish meant that it was going to be, I was in charge and I'd be calling the shots, but it'd be a one-man band. And it, I, how much was I going to learn uh, in the context of, of scaling myself towards becoming a head of performance? I already kind of felt like strength conditioning part is the bit that I already know. So how do I get good at the other parts? And not Whereas at Harlequins, like already they were talking about, they were making huge investment in sports science. They'd already put me, booked me in for a, a nine-day trip to America uh, to you know visit certain places and spend time with certain coaches and stuff like this to basically talk about some of the things that we were trying to implement. And so, so the, the scope for improvement was far greater. And I kind of thought to myself, if I spend a couple of years at the coalface as a sports scientist, that would give me insight as a sports scientist that I wouldn't have if I was always sort of standing from the outside. So I made the decision to go with the, the sports science role at, at Harlequins. It didn't go as well as I hoped. I think that I was too, at that stage, I was still too, um, I had this idea in my head because I had no uh, clear credibility as a former player. I think I was far too uh, standoffish and too worried about getting too pally with the players to allow that to compromise me. So um, there was there was, there was very little coaching in that period of time. Um, but I, anyway, I, I learned an absolute lot, a lot, and it was definitely worth doing the grand scheme of things. And then um, I actually got asked, but London Irish had new owners in December 2013, who are some of the current owners now. It's actually overtaken by Mick Crossan. So Mick Crossan has actually got Calvin Heritage, mm. I believe his father. From Goon. Father's from Goon. From Goon, yeah, yeah. So um, I actually didn't know that until I actually left London Irish the second time. But when Mick came back in, it was a bit like the Busby Babes or the Fergie Fledglings. There was an era of players that came through at our time at London Irish. It's like a who's who of international players and British and Irish lands. And they're all scattered across the Premiership now because their contract went up during that time. And they were never going to stay. And um, so anyway, Mick Cross had hired a team to basically fix the club. And the first year, the goal was to fix the backroom team. So I got I got asked, would I be interested in coming back? And I said, there's absolutely no chance I'm coming back to work with Brian Smith. But I basically was told, look, look just you, you'll not be answering to him, you'll be answering to us. So anyway, I ended up making the, the decision reluctantly because um, funnily, the, uh, Sarah, who's Sarah's my girlfriend, she had already been looking in Guildford for places for us to stay because we had already been offered uh, a new contract with Harlequins to continue on into the 14-15 the season. But over a period of about a month, London Irish managed to persuade me to come back. Um, I was convinced that enough was going to change, that it was worth coming back. And then so in, in June June 2014, I was back in London Irish again. Okay. And, and from there then... It's you, you, you obviously continued in that role until you came to Cavan. Um, yes, so, uh, so I, I was brought back as the senior strength conditioning coach, which was basically I was brought in as the third guy. There's the long story short, I was the second guy within about four months, okay. and um, my, my primary role was to look after the injured players, that's why I was brought back in. That was the primary role, but you have, you've got roles involved with everything. 
Um, but what happened under the Irish was they made the mistake and um, their plan was that they were going to bring in uh, year two, year one was the backroom team, year two was the, the main coaching team. And they weren't convinced that the people that they had were going to be the people that take the Irish to where they wanted to take them. And they couldn't get who they wanted, as the story goes. So they ended up probably rushing in to bring in people to be the head coaching team in the 15-16 season. And London Irish went from a team who'd finished ninth in the Premiership, who were looking to finish, say, in the top seven or eight and progress a little bit further in the European competition to getting relegated. And the, the alarm bells were going off within weeks of them arriving. And um, people were putting their fingers in their ears about what was going on. And uh, anyway, long story short, the relegation has a huge consequence in rugby. Even though you fall off, you, there's a huge difference in the championship and the Premier League in, in soccer. There's so much money in the championship that even if you lose all that money for the Premier League, you're not all of a sudden off a cliff edge. Um, but in rugby, it's totally different. Going into the championship is, is disaster financially. And so the coaching team that was brought in were all but gone then. And there was another change in management. So this has been the third change of management that had been there. And then when we came back up the next year, we got promoted easily. We, uh, as expected, because there's a huge gap between the 13th best team in England and the rest. Um, when we came back up, we did very, very well. Uh, we were much more competitive. We were getting absolutely humped out the gate uh, in, the, in the first year we got relegated. But in the, in the year we came back up, um, we still weren't getting the results, but we were losing by like a couple of points. And um, they changed the management again in February 2018, I think it was. Yeah, it was, yeah. And they brought in Declan Kidney and Les Kiss. And um, by this stage, I was absolutely exhausted beyond belief of frustration about the constant change and not being able to evaluate the process. And just because we weren't getting the results didn't mean that everything we were doing was wrong. And the constant change was killing us because we had huge turnover. Like in the year that we got relegated the first time, they were talking about getting rid of the huge turnover from year from year. That was a big reason why London Irish was getting worse and worse because there was no, no the players that were involved weren't invested in the team, weren't invested mm -hmm. in the club. And so they were talking about single digit figures for turnover going into the, the, the 16 17 season. And 29 players who had played in the, four, the, the 15 16 season left at the end of that season. 29 players. So, um, I was totally losing the plot as far as like, I just, I was tired of it. I was just tired of, you know, us changing and going back around the same problems because a new person would come in and we'd start everything from scratch and we'd go through all the same problems again. They'd want to try the same solutions again and round and round we went. And so I was exasperated by this point. So I was looking for something fresh. And then in around about the summer of 2018, I seen that there was a, a job being advertised for Calvin, which was the head of athletic development. And um, I just thought they were definitely a plan for this. And that's, that, that's, how that, that, that's how I got to that stage. Okay, folks, so that's part one of our three-part series with the Cavan Head of Athletic Development, Andre Quinn. Tune in for our second part where he talks about his role with Cavan GAA, working with amateur players compared to professional players, um, the systems he has implemented as the Head of Athletic Development and um, how Cavan players 
worked individually during COVID in 2020. He also goes into his opinion on games coming week in, week out, so game after game. So that's in part two of our interview with Andre Quinn. So folks, if you want to get part two and part three of that interview, head on over to patreon.com forward slash we are Kevin and um, you can you can hear the part two and part three over the next couple of days coming out on that for a very small subscription fee per month. Uh, Paul, I suppose, amazing to think that Andre's in that role two years um, and, and and now I'm only getting a chance to get talking to him, but he's um, he, very, very interesting and a, had a huge reaction to that part one from our diehard subscribers. Yeah, serious reaction. I haven't heard part two or three yet, uh, unfortunately. And I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure you send them to me before you do any more with them because I'm mad to listen to them now. And I know a lot of people were getting in touch saying when it's part two up. There's a huge, uh, hugely positive reaction to it. I thought it was, it was uh, so far it's been a it's been an enthralling interview with Andre. Like very honest, talking about his childhood and talking about his earliest introductions to to sport, football, and soccer, and then all about. Uh, his break into professional sports um, in his professional life and so on. So I, I think it's set up lovely. Uh, and when he gets into the cab and stuff, I think that's going to be the type of podcast that people are going to go back and listen to a few times because it, he has a great story to tell, Damien. And, and um, you did a good job so far in getting the story out of him. Yeah, and not not to give too much away, but part two really delves into um, his time with Cav and, Cavan's run through the Ulster Championship to to win it last year. What he has learned from year one to year two, um, his thoughts on 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 the calendar, even which is quite interesting too. Um, really refreshing point of view in terms of what he how he feels the GA calendar could be improved, particularly from an intercounty point of view. Um, and then in part three, it it kind of it delves into into a few more kind of personal issues as well he, he's had cancer as is well documented and he talks a, a fair bit about that um, and he talks about the Cavan players reaction to to him going through uh, treatment for cancer last year so there, there's a, there's an awful lot in it but anyway um, if you want the rest of those it's over on patreon.com forward slash we are Cavan Paul before we head off um, the uh, the the the, the the government have come out and said about that there may be a pathway back or that, that the GA may get back onto the elite list. Um, it, 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 this is just a, a constant yo-yo of a story, isn't it? That you're, you're on it, you're not on it, you, you may get back onto it, but it won't be immediate. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know what to make of it at this stage. Yeah, well, look, they're, they're making it up as they go along. And I suppose on one end, you have to have sympathy for them because you kind of don't have much choice with a pandemic that you haven't dealt with before other than make it up as you go along. But I think the problem is they're, they're playing politics with it all the time and you've competing, you've competing politicians within, you're basically players on the same team that aren't pulling together in terms of our government. I think that's causing a lot of problems here. Um, and, you know, I think I uh, talked about the media last week. It's, I don't want to bore people talking about that again, but it, it's, it's ironic that Basically, um, in Ireland, we've been very smug about about the UK leaving uh, the European Union. Like we really had a good laugh at Brexit and uh, what sort of idiots they made of themselves and so on. 
and our media in particular was very smug about it. But it, that leaving the Brexit, leaving the European Union is basically what has allowed them to get out of this pandemic because because they weren't part of the EU. My understanding is that they were able to purchase huge amounts of the vaccines and now they're so far ahead of, we'll say, where Ireland are. Like, for example, there's 23% uh, of people in the north have now had their first jab at a vaccine. I know it's a, it's a two-jab approach for certain vaccines, but there's a huge immunity um, granted from the first vaccine or from the first jab so like in in the south is 3.8 percent was the was the last figures i saw so like if you're living in balik for example you're 10 times more likely to have got the jab than if you're living in bundorna valishan um and like that's that's a pretty bad indictment of of where we're at at the minute like well i i i, I don't think that britain leaving the EU is what allowed them to get those extra vaccines. I think that that because Germany bought a, a lot of additional vaccines as well. I, I understand, or you know, so while you're part of the EU's purchasing uh, program, you could still go out and buy more. But the UK definitely appear to be uh, way ahead of us in terms of vaccines. They were also way behind everybody else in terms of how to dealt with with COVID-19 in the past. So their, their lack of lockdowns at times when, when other European countries were locking down led them to a higher percentage of death um, than, than most countries in the world. So it, it's, it, it's not all just black and white for them. While they're, they're vaccine, they're definitely leading the way in how to administer the vaccine. They've, uh, they've, they've lagged far, far behind other countries in, in, in other ways as well yeah, i i think i think a, a lot of a lot of it um are the socioeconomic factors like you know and i know from talking to someone recently i actually had exchanged exchanged emails with one of the high profile uh virologists would you believe he, he got on to me after a column that i wrote so he he, he did uh give me a few thoughts that he had on it last week <clears throat> what he was saying and i've looked it up since and he's he's of course correct is that uh, density of housing is a factor and in socioeconomic factors come into play. So you could be living in overcrowded, poor quality housing and without proper ventilation and so on. And that's a big factor in the spread of the virus. And I think that's that's a factor that maybe in this country uh, we're, we've been lucky to have avoided for the most part. Compared to places like England, where there is serious poverty uh, in parts of England now, like you see the, the queues at food banks and so on. It's hard to believe that this is England we're talking about. Um, in, in the year 2021 like the, I grew up in England up until I was nine but even even going back there like there's there's huge poverty and, and huge areas like post-industrial areas that are, that are uh, just very poor like huge high unemployment poor housing and so on they're all factors like uh, you, you tend to get a lot of obesity uh, a higher proportion of obesity and poor health and stuff like that in in, in those sort of places that, that uh, take those boxes. And they're all factors. Like obesity is a huge factor in the virus as well. So that's something that's playing into it as well. But uh, I wouldn't make any proclamation, good or bad, about any country until it does settle, until you can really sit back and see. And that'll take a couple of years, I'd say, until you can sit back and see, right, hold on, let's place this in context. Uh, how many mm -hmm. people have really did, did die from this? How many people really, uh, what was the catastrophic outcome? Or maybe it wasn't catastrophic at all because... Uh, there's a lot of competing ideas out there and again it's all information you're bombarded with information you don't know what to believe and 
you know it's like it's like uh, sometimes you tend to believe what you want to believe and I'm definitely guilty of that like it was kind of like people making the case for Donegal to beat Dublin last year uh, based on based on beating uh, Tyrone in, in a monsoon and then beating a, a flaky Armagh team everyone was going around saying oh Donegal are going to beat Dublin or Donegal are big threats to Dublin but it, that was more that people kind of wanted that to be the case I think people wanted there to be a legitimate threat out there for Dublin more so I think they kind of convinced themselves and I'd be I'd be guilty of that in some ways, like cherry picking what you what you read and what you what you pass on to other people to suit your own narrative. Definitely, I know I, I am guilty of that. So I'd rather kind of sit back and wait and see in a year's time before we say how bad or, or how good the UK did, or the same for Ireland. But it, it raises a big question, Damien, about um, the, what the GA are going to do now. Because without a doubt, we are going to reach a point now, given the, the current schedule for vaccinations in the north and the, and the mainland UK, if you want to call it that, that we're going we're gonna to reach a point where there's going to be mass vaccin- vaccination in the UK and Northern Ireland, and you're not going to have it mm. here. And you're yeah. going to have soccer clubs and rugby clubs and everything else in the six counties are going to open up. What happens in, in the south? That's going to be a major talking point, I predict, in the next couple of months, because the GEA is a 32-county organisation, obviously. And do we... Do we in the GEA say, all right, go ahead up to north because everyone else has gone ahead. It, it's impossible. It's... But, but, but can, you, can you stop people? Like, if you're up in Tyrone and everything else is open, can the GEA say, no, yeah, I know it's perfect, that your government has said it's perfectly safe, but we're saying it's not. Or we're saying you can't play because someone maybe in Clare or Tipperary or Cork can't play. Like, so it's going to be a major, a major tricky one, and then insurance might come into play as well. That's another factor. You just wouldn't know how that would spin out. Yeah, yeah. Like, look at the the unfortunate scenario is that it's not a a, a one island approach to the whole thing, and and we're we're going to see the uh, as you said the rollout be completely different. I can only imagine that the the, the county boards in the six counties, if they get very far ahead of us in terms of vaccines that they're just going to say listen it's 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 in our public health uh it's in it's to the benefit of our of our of, of our members to get out and get active and get our kids back playing sport and get our adults back out playing sport when there's no risk and therefore it it may actually even become uh as small as a county by county basis like could you if you take into situation that you're talking about um where the density of the population actually affects the, the spread of the virus, which it, it clearly does. Um, is, there, is there an argument to say that Leitrim should be back allowed to play club football before Dublin? You know, yeah, just, that's just, it. Just that's a possibility it. of it. Yeah, completely. Completely. Like, like, and that's a big factor. Like, like you have seen Dublin uh, generally towards the top of the, of the infection charts, if you want to call them that, um, like pro, on a pro or other basis, you know, per 100,000 population, Dublin has been high up there. I know Cavan has been top for Monon has been top for, but Dublin has has always been pretty high up there. So that is an indicator of that. Like, uh, I think that definitely is a factor. Mm. You know, if, you, if you're living in living in one-off rural housing, which is so common in, in rural Ireland, obviously it's going to be easier to avoid coming into contact with people. So, and Leitrim is a great example because Leitrim has had a tiny level of infection throughout it, not just for its, for its uh, per 100,000 population. But in general, you know, Leitrim has so many days you look at it, Leitrim has had, had less than five cases per day, which is the, the, 
the way the numbers come out from Neffet every evening, they always say, you know, it starts at five and the rest of the counties below that are less than five. So Leitrim has always been down there. So, yeah, look, I, I, do you notice, you ever hear Godwin's Law where, where um, if you're arguing with somebody on the, on the internet, there's a rule of thumb that says that, I think it's like, <clears throat> within a certain period of time, someone will invoke Hitler. So a, no matter what you're arguing about, someone will always go, well, that's like, that's like saying Hitler could have done this. I think no matter what you're talking about in the GEA, at some point in time, there's going to be a comparison between Dublin and Leitrim. That's, no matter what, yeah. you, you always get on well, to. It's because it's the extremes in, in, in the population. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was the only reason I went for Leitrim on it, like, but yeah. I know, but it's a funny one. And the funding of the teams as well, obviously, like Leitrim was such, I think the Leitrim... Uh, county sponsor was 10 grand but she wouldn't there's definitely players yeah. in Dublin getting more than 10 grand so yeah uh, yeah but it, it's an interesting one as well but look I suppose there there is light at the end of the tunnel and I know that people in the north are are, uh, are a lot more optimistic than we are down here at the minute mm. that's, that's what, I, what, what I will say is I I did like, and, and I'm definitely no fan of Boris Johnson, but I did like the way he actually phrased his his statement yesterday, um, saying that you know uh, I think uh, whatever I might be wrong on the dates, but the 18th of May or something like that, um, we'll have attendances back at at large sporting events, um, but the way he actually phrased it was, uh, no no sooner than the 18th of May. So it, it was very, very interesting that he, he was basically saying, look, at, this is when it's going to happen. But it was spun positively. Compare that to the negative narrative that's coming out in, in Ireland that, oh, well, we're going to be in lockdown now until April. And, and you know, it just, it, it I, I just, I don't like the way it's been framed here. But anyway, I've said that enough times that people would be bored of it. Um, but it's, look, at, hopefully, hopefully, that the GEA come together, meet over the next few days, um, their COVID committee, and uh, just start to offer some light and some hope that even even if it is, and, it's, and it may only be a small thing, but even if it is just kids allowed to get out and have non-contact uh, training in pods of, of 10 or 15 or whatever the case may be, just, just allow people to get out and 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 do something that's physically enjoyable and good for their mental health good for their physical um development and you know i think the ga could take a lead on that and, and hopefully they hopefully they'll be allowed and hopefully they will well i think the ga w- would would uh, bring back underage games at least i'm not saying to drop a hat but fairly soon if they were allowed but you'd wonder what our relations like at the moment between ga and and the, the department that's that they're dealing with in the government, because they do they do seem to have been a few slide tackles going in there, and they've been caught unaware several times. And you know, like Jack Chambers came out recently, and what he said was totally contradictory. So, like, you know, I'd say with certain, there's probably some certain um, people at the leadership of the GE are probably more capable than people are in leadership positions in the government um, as well, because I think that. That the GA has definitely been caught unaware several times over the course of this and got a lot of flack last year for the county final celebrations and rightly so to an extent, uh, rightly so. But you know, do you blame who do you blame for that? At what point does a person uh, become more than just a GA member? Like if you're you might be someone in a pub that's celebrating a win, a win in a county final just because you're aware and you're you're uh, Red Hills top 
does that mean you're you're there in your capacity as a Hills member of that club? Are you just there as a fella that's drinking pints after a county final win? I thought the GA in general uh, got a serious bash in there because you know some of the clubs that, that win stuff have small membership and not everyone is going to be out in the pubs. You've a lot of older people, you've a lot of children included in that membership. But an awful lot of people are out celebrating aren't even members of the clubs. And yet mm-hmm. the GEA did get a total, got the full wrap of it there. And and they themselves then cancelled a few finals and things around the country. They suspended all, all activity. So I I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't, I think the GEA in general have done all they can, like, and they got the games run and so on last year as much as they could. But I'd say they're just, they're totally probably frustrated at the moment. Yeah, yeah. It does look like the indicators are, though, that it may be Allianz League in May, um, which will which will throw up that, obviously, then the championship is to go back further in the year, the All-Ireland Championship. So, um, Will there be a league even, Damon, do you think? Well, just I, I was reading um, Damien Lawler's piece on, on RTE, and it, it seemed to indicate that the uh, the 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 most possible outcome is that there will be an all uh, an Allianz League in May time. Um, well, Damien Lawler's so, very well informed, so I definitely mm-hmm. give credence to that because he's he's actually on some of the he might be on the COVID advisory committee or he's very close to it anyway. But have, has there been any indication about the under twenties when you might get a get the, your players to meet up? No, and that's the unfortunate thing on it is that that both under twenties, under seventeens, all that like so. There's there's no there's no indication. There's nothing coming out from anywhere as to when that that can that can start when training start when the competition may be. It it was initially down on the master fixture plan that was released back in December for the end of March, but obviously we know that that's not going to happen at this stage. But are they going to? They're going to if they if the Allianz leagues are going in May, will they run these underage competitions in tandem? Um with them, will they will they push them back to run them maybe during championship time with, with county seniors? Will they push them to the very end of the year? Nobody seems to know, and that's that's the the really difficult part from it. From my point of view, as I keep on peddling, I I'd I'd love to see them run them as soon as they possibly can and as soon as it's 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 safe to do so um because i know i know that these lads need it that from talking to them from from trying to keep in contact with them on, on phone calls and that they um they need something to aim towards they need a focus and a target and and, and they need an outlet of some sort so it'd be great to see them get this and 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 a lot of others obviously not just county players but um the smaller numbers are easier to manage in this situation than than the masses of, of clubs getting getting in to do it so i suppose that the, the the first step may be that the counties are allowed back at it i think so because i think we've i do feel the tide is torn and public opinion is torn and people are getting fed up with it and they're starting to see that that uh you know, I was re- I saw this morning, and this isn't some crank. This is writers who had this graph up on social media where Ireland has ha- Ireland has been in lockdown, which they classified as uh, weeks where where basically um, places of business have closed for 163 weeks in the pandemic. And I think the nearest in in uh, Europe to that is Italy, which was 133 weeks. And there's other. It goes right down through the scale, like Bulgaria. I don't have it in front of me. I think Bulgaria was seven weeks. Sweden was zero. Uh, so Ireland has really has really locked down hard for a long time, and I know there's and, more people out and about and so on. But 
the end of the day, and I know me and you were talking, you were saying there's a lot of traffic around, which there is, but you know, at the end of the day, like, this is an awful lot closed. Schools are closed, the, sports are closed. Yeah, there is, there's, there, there is a lot of businesses and facilities closed, but the behaviour of people is not in lockdown. And the, um, the, the proof of that is, I think, um, I'm not sure if it's the same, I heard on the radio this morning, but that Ireland is currently in the longest continuous spell of a lockdown of any country in Europe. And yet we're, we're, we're staying on it because the numbers aren't dramatically coming down enough um, and they're blaming new variants and they're blaming other stuff. I just know from being around Cavan Town that lockdown is not being adhered to to the level of this time last year or the lockdown of March last year. It's not. It's not even close. There's no comparison. I can. What, what, I can see it. What, in what way are people assembling though? Because I know that the the average uh, close contacts I think is like it was two point one. I think it's like two point four something. I saw it was the last time, which is still low. Uh, it's lower than it was in December by half. So I, the only way I can see people are assembling is maybe just people calling to houses. Mm. Um, but I, I can't, like, I, there's no other there's way definitely of, people, of, of assembling. There's, well, there, there's people assembling outside. Uh, and, and while I, I don't know if that's transmitting is, is my thing, but just from a visual point of view, I can I can see an awful lot more gatherings of people outside and, you know, people meeting up to and and it's all healthy stuff don't get me wrong in my head anyway meeting up to go out and go for a walk and stuff like that but i think it's 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 the meeting there must be and i'd say there is a lot of you know meeting in houses again i i i'm just comparing this to lockdown one and lockdown one you know it, it was like christmas day every day where there was very little traffic on the road. There was very few people driving around housing estates. Kids, if you remember, we there was a there was a, a, a an applause at seven o'clock one evening. Everybody, please come outside your door and applaud these kids for staying in. That's not happening now. Schools might as well be open for the amount of time that, that I'm seeing kids congregating in groups around Cavan Town at the moment. There's there's a huge amount of it going on. Um so it's 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 by no means the same level of a lockdown that we've seen in, in lockdown one. Yeah, yeah. Well that's true, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to be honest. I think at this stage, like personal personally speaking, I think at this stage, uh, it, it should have been eased a bit. A bit like the problem is I, I'm reluctant nearly to say that here on the podcast because Someone that is, is probably listening to this is going to turn around and say, "That bollocks, that callous bastard. He doesn't care." And he, you know, and it's not the case. Like, but and and that react that sort of reaction to to comments, uh, has created division through the whole thing, and it has really it has really silenced a lot of debate. And we needed debate, and we didn't get it. And we what we got was sort of, uh, putting on the green jersey and, uh, look what happened in Italy. You know, if I hear that one more time, like this, it's you're not comparing like with like there. Um, that's not going to happen in Ireland now at this stage of the game. But and, and no one is saying I'm completely open up. I don't think I, uh, anyone is saying open the whole place tomorrow and open nightclubs and all the rest of it. I don't think anyone's saying that. But there must be there must be a better way than this because like it's Jesus, it's dragging on there. And yeah, if you were inclined I... to 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 have mental health issues or anything like that or you had in the past, which thank God, uh, touch wood that, that I haven't. But I know a lot of people that have, and if if you were, this has got to be such a frightening time. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think the big thing, and, and I can't believe we've gone down this rabbit hole again, but uh, the big thing is that that I don't see the learning from from one to two to three in terms of lockdown um, or, or, or spikes, as they call them. But um, look, at, we are where we are and we, we, we have to get on with it. Hopefully they start to to allow people to to meet outdoors even. I, I think that that's just, just, look, I think it's happening in a lot of cases, but some people are afraid to do it. And, you know. If, I thought people was, were allowed to meet outdoors, no? No, no, not meant to. That's, there you go. That'll tell you the mixed message yeah. there. I presume, I presume that, that if you were living within five kilometers of me, that we could meet at a certain point and go for a walk at a social no. distance. No, no. Apparently, that's not not allowed within level five lockdown. You can't you see if, if if a rule like I didn't I didn't even realize that. So that'll tell you my observance of it, maybe. But if a rule is that disproportionate, it's not going to be it's not going to be fully observed because no people are going to say, "Hold on, that's that's just crazy," and it, and the Gardaí just don't have the resources to enforce something like that. No, completely, completely agree. But look at fingers crossed. Uh, my my strong belief is that. We will be out of this sooner than than is being portrayed. I think there there's a there's a a negative perception being peddled so that we can we can see them all riding on their big white horses and say we've done it we've we've done it quicker than we said we would. So. Yeah, that's interesting. Like that that could be that could be the game here, and you know politicians are going to politic, but it's a dangerous game if that is the case. And I don't know, like. I don't know if our politicians are playing that game. Yeah. If 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 they are, I think it'll it it has a huge potential to backfire. That's something that they they'll have to be very very wary of because um, there is there's definitely pent up anger and more people saying is this the best way of doing this now than there was in lockdown one or two. See, people um, are people are fed up of being spoken down to. And again, I'm going to sound like some like uh, one of these Tories who was promoting Brexit and saying uh, we've heard enough. Uh, people are sick listening to experts, which which was just a hilarious comment in its own, in its own right. But there is an element of truth in that. People are sick of being of being talked down to and being told right everything you know is wrong. You know that if you walk to the end of your estate and you stand seven or eight feet away from your friend and and you go for a walk twenty minutes down the road, that that's going to be good for both of you. You know that because you've you've grown up. You're an adult, and and from a child, you know what's safe and what's not. And now you're being told that that it's not. And better than that, or worse than that, you're actually uh, we actually have become a nation of telltales. Did you see that couple who were up on the Wicklow Mountains and and found, came across a dog who'd been missing for two weeks, and they managed to rescue the dog and had to carry it for miles down. And the dog hadn't eaten in two weeks and was at death's door, and the dog survived. And it was a heroic story. Someone complained to the guards about them that they were more than five k from their home. I didn't hear that part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I read that a couple of days ago, and that just that would just turn your stomach. Like, yeah, I have to agree. But anyway, I think uh, fingers crossed we're coming out of it. Uh, it will get better. I'm going to finish it on a positive note. And again, folks, thanks a million for listening to me and Paul ramble about COVID, about Andre Quinn, and about the wonderful Ashley Jordan who's doing so well down in Australia. <laughs>